Very fitting song to go with our sermon this morning, because as we're going to see, apart from Christ, uh, we all uh, would be just like our father and mother in the garden, Adam and Eve. Uh, Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Be in Genesis chapter 3. If you're using the Bible provided for you there in the pew, it's on page 2, beginning on page 2 there. Uh, We continue in our sermon series, The Bookends of Scripture. We're wanting to take a look at the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, the closing chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 through 22, and to see the big story of God's Word. What is God trying to tell us uh, in His big story of Scripture? There are themes that we see in the beginning that we also see come up at the end. Now, I know many of you have told me, uh, Genesis is fine, Pastor, but we're really ready for you to get to the book of Revelation. I understand. You've got one more week. We'll start. We'll be in Revelation chapter 20 next week. But for today, we are in Genesis chapter 3. We've seen in the, the very good beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of our creation begins with God. God has made all things. We owe our existence to God. And God has a very good design, a design for how we're to be uh, with Him forever, how we are to dwell with God in His presence forever. God has a very good design uh, for the home, the institution of marriage. God, uh, in the beginning, gave a very good design. But even as we look around the world today, especially today, a day when, as I mentioned earlier, many gather around the idea of darkness, we understand that something has gone terribly wrong. We're going to ask that question and see the answer here in God's Word this morning. What went wrong? Genesis chapter 3. And at this time, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 7. So if you found your place in God's Word, whether in body or in spirit, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come to you now asking that you would help us to see both our sinfulness, but also the salvation provided through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to set aside all distractions at this time, Father, that we would hear from your word, that by your spirit we would clearly understand and that we would obey you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Immediately, in verse 1, we see that something strange is going on in the garden. We're introduced to a new major character in the text. 
So far, uh, the opening chapters of Scripture have emphasized God as the Creator, and we've seen uh, the man and the woman, but now a serpent is introduced. This should catch our attention. Serpents always catch my attention. When a serpent shows up, look around, pay attention. The serpent is described as crafty. Other translations might say cunning. Uh, When we hear that, we automatically uh, have suspicion. We know that he's up to no good. But in the original Hebrew, it's ambiguous. We're not quite sure. We need to keep paying attention to see what this serpent does. And so we watch him carefully, but we're told that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we have all sorts of questions at this point. Who is the serpent? We understand from looking at Scripture as a whole uh, that this serpent is indeed Satan himself coming in the garden in the form of a serpent. The devil has commandeered a willing accomplice, the serpent, and the serpent is doing his dirty work here through the snake. Well, did the snake have legs at this time? Did he lose the legs because of this incident? Perhaps you've heard it interpreted that way. Many people for a long time have believed that. Many Jewish commentators for many, many generations have taught that. But notice that the text doesn't say anything about that. What the text is emphasizing is that this is supposed to be taken straightforwardly. We're supposed to understand that this is a literal garden with a literal man and woman and a literal snake who is now talking. So things are getting stranger The serpent is talking, and he says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, is that what God said? No. You remember, you have your Bibles open, look up there in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, with one exception. You see, when God states this command, God puts it in a positive light, that you may eat of everything except this one tree. But when the serpent asks the woman, he puts this command in a negative light, saying, you may not eat of any of those trees. Now, it's possible that the serpent has just misunderstood. Here's the perfect opportunity for the woman to jump in and to say, here's what God actually said. But is this what she does? Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So close. Eve basically, essentially, recounts what God said back in chapter 2. And remember that God actually gave this command before He had even formed the woman. God gave this command to Adam. So we're not sure, we're not told how Eve learned of this. If Adam reported the command to her, or if God himself spoke to Eve and told her this is the command. But Eve knows what's going on. She understands what should be said, and yet she adds to God's word. She adds the phrase, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. I'm not going to speculate as to why Eve adds to what God said. But I want to point out the danger, both of what the serpent is doing and the danger of what Eve is doing. One questions the truthfulness of God's word, and one adds to God's word. Both of these are ditches that we are to avoid. We can work hard to understand what God has said, 
But we don't want to move into that realm of questioning God's character of his goodness just because we don't like what he has said. And even if we have good intentions, we ought not to build hedges around God's word and add to God's word in ways that God has not said. We must avoid either of those two ditches. Well, any doubt that you might have about the serpent's innocence is now removed in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John 8.44 tells us that Satan is a liar. He's the father of all lies. Here, Satan, in the form of a serpent, directly, blatantly lies about God. He speaks an untruth about what God has said. And in doing so, Satan insinuates that God is the liar. God has said, don't eat from this one particular tree, but if you do, you will die. But Satan tells the woman, that's not true. God is not being honest with you, Eve. He doesn't want you to be like him. Do you hear how Satan is manipulating Eve? He's appealing to her pride. Satan's temptation that is if you will do this, you will be like God. He's puffing her up, stroking her ego, making a pitfall out of her pride. Here, a creature, the serpent, not made in the image of God, speaks to the woman, a human, who is made in the image of God, and he dares say, if you will sin against your Creator, you will be more like Him. She was already created and made in the image of God. She was already like Him, greater than the creatures were, and yet Satan lies and says, if you will just disobey your Creator, you will be more like Him. Satan, the serpent, wants Eve to doubt the goodness of God, the character of God. Adam and Eve have seen the goodness of God on full display in the garden. He's given them everything that they need. They're living in paradise. They have no reason at all to doubt the goodness of God. And yet Satan says, he's not really good. He's holding back. God doesn't want you to experience the good life. He's keeping things from you, woman. This, this is the moment when Eve should have shouted back, No, you wicked serpent. I don't know who you are, but I know who the Lord my God is. He's made all things, and He's given me everything that I need. And I know that He is good, and I will not listen to you doubt the goodness of the Lord God. That's what Eve should have said, but that's not what she did say. Instead, she listens to the serpent and his lies, and she's led into temptation. You know, Satan continues to tempt in the same way, even today. He whispers those same old lies. He convinces you that God is a cosmic killjoy. That God is focused on limiting your happiness in this world. Satan tells you that if you really want to enjoy this world, if you really want to enjoy this life, then you need to break free from the boundaries that God has placed on you. That you need to break off the bondage of those stiff rules that God has given in the Bible. You just need to be you. Just do whatever feels right 
to you. Don't worry about God's good boundaries. Don't worry about God's good design. Just do what is right in your own eyes. Satan tempts the woman to doubt the goodness of God. He provokes her to pride. And he minimizes the importance of God. Did you notice that in the text? All throughout chapter 3, the narrator, Moses, he points back to the Creator and he identifies Him as the Lord God. Every time the narrator is speaking, he says, The Lord God. The Lord God. This is a reminder of who God is. His personal name, Yahweh, followed by the general name for God. It's a two-word title. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. But when the serpent speaks, he minimizes who God is. He doesn't include the personal name of God. He just says, God. Did God say this? Did God really say this? And then when Eve begins speaking, she does the same thing. She follows suit and she simply refers to him as God. How evil and insidious is the work of Satan. He minimizes the significance of God. He doubts the goodness of God and he pits our pride against God. You see, Adam and Eve are to be busy exercising dominion. They're to be exercising control over creation. This serpent is something that the woman should be controlling. But instead, this serpent is speaking back and attempting to control her. So how will she respond? Will she fulfill the command that God has given to her by her creator? Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman saw that the tree was good, and it was a delight. Now up until this point in Genesis, God has been the arbiter of what is good. God is the one who looks at creation each day and says that it is good. God is the one who looks at creation as a whole and declares that it is very good. But now Eve has looked to her own standards to determine what is good. She knows what is good. She knows what is a true delight. She knows what is to be desired. What is the real sin that's taking place here? Does the sin begin with doubting the goodness of God? I think so. Does the sin continue by the woman looking at her own standards rather than God's standards? I think so. But the sin is brought to a climax. There's no longer any room for doubt when she explicitly disobeys God's command and she takes and she eats. Notice the crisp staccato actions in the story. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Just like that, the deed is done. Just like that, the creation has rebelled against the Creator. But the same insurrection that took place in the garden takes place in our hearts. Every child of Adam and Eve since that day has followed in that very same pattern. The book of James in the New Testament makes that clear. James chapter 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Satan promised that following him would bring life. 
and it only brings death. This is the universal pattern of temptation and sin. The woman has abdicated her position as caretaker of the garden. And the one whom she should have exercised dominion over, the serpent, has deceived her and led her into sin. But what about that other caretaker of the garden? The one who also was tasked with tending and keeping the garden. The one who is supposed to nourish and protect her as well. Adam is right there with her. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It seems that Adam was standing right there all along. It seems that Adam heard every word. Now, even if Adam happened to be somewhere else when all this was taking place, when he shows up and Eve offers the fruit to him, he knows that he shouldn't do it. Adam knew better, but Adam also ate. Adam also has failed his responsibilities to his bride and to his creator. And what happens when they have eaten? Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. The serpent promised them that their eyes would be opened. He's told them a half-truth. They do see things differently now, and things are much worse than they realized. Because they have disobeyed God, they do now see. Their eyes are open to their sin. They see what they have done, and they experience shame. They recognize the gravity of what they have done, and they attempt to cover it all up. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They made clothes to cover their reproductive organs out of leaves. Now let's get practical for just a moment. This is not a good plan. The minute you pluck a leaf off of a tree, it immediately begins to die. It may cover you up for a few days, but before long, it will begin to dry and crackle and die. Eventually, the covering is just going to fall away. And we might chuckle at the quaintness of Adam and Eve's attempt to cover up their sin. Oh, how silly they were. But we're just like them. We try to cover up our sins in the same old foolish ways. We think that somehow we can hide our sins from God. Some of you this morning are attempting to hide your sins from God and your vain attempts are just like dried fig leaves waiting to crumble away. Repent today. Throw yourself on the goodness and mercy of God. The man and the woman, they have sinned. Their innocence is gone. God's good design for the marriage is distorted and they will have difficulty from this day forward. What was supposed to be the sweet taste of sin has left the bitterness of death on their lips. In verses 8 through 13, we see the conversation that follows as Adam and Eve attempt to cover up their sin before a holy God. Like children hiding from their parents, Adam and Eve have attempted to cover up their sins and their shame. How's that going to turn out? Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Did you hear how they're referred to 
right here. Not by name, but as the man and his wife. At the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. But now, just a few verses later, the man and his wife are still naked, but fully aware of their nakedness. They're full of shame. And they're foolishly trying to hide from the fellowship that they've previously enjoyed with God. They've fallen from wanting to be like God to not even wanting to be in the presence of God. They've eaten from the tree in the midst of the garden. And now they don't even want to commune with the Lord God who walks in the midst of the trees in the garden. Even as they hide like shameful children, the Heavenly Father is gracious and long-suffering. The Lord God begins a series of questions in verse 9 that are actually merciful, not what Satan would have led them to believe. And the questions are directed to Adam specifically as leader of his home. God asks him, where are you? Now, God wasn't asking because God didn't know the answer. God sees all things. God knows all things. God knows where Adam is and God knows where you are. But Adam needs to recognize where Adam is. You need to recognize where you are. This is Adam's opportunity to fall into the arms of his father crying out, Father, I failed. I sinned. I wasn't deceived like the woman was, but I still chose to sin. I doubted you and I disobeyed you. God is giving Adam the opportunity to repent. But instead, Adam says, I heard, I was afraid, and I hid. Adam is unable to admit that he has sinned. He's trying to cover his sins and he's about to try and shift the blame. And like every son of Adam since the garden... The man struggles to admit his own sin. Some of you are in the place of Adam today. You need to recognize that you stand in the shame of your sins and you need to simply confess them and trust the Lord God. God asks two more questions in verse 11. He says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He says, of course you're naked, Adam. How did you figure it out? God, again, gives Adam the opportunity to repent. Does, does Adam fess up? Does he throw himself upon the character of God? No. Look at verse 12. Adam begins to shift the blame. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault, God. It's the woman. She gave me food and I just ate of it. It's not my fault. Don't forget, God, I didn't ask for her. I just went to sleep and took a nap and I woke up and there she was. It's not my fault. That's the refrain of Adam and it's the refrain of every sinner. It's not my fault. Do you hear what Adam is doing? Like all men are tempted to do at one time or another, Adam abdicates his responsibility. He doesn't want to accept the blame that he deserves. But hear how silly his excuses sound. How pathetic he sounds. In chapter 2, Adam was singing her praises. He was saying, at last, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But now, in chapter 3, he says, it's this woman that you gave me. Adam was so excited about God's gracious gift to him and his bride. 
But that was the wedding day. And the honeymoon is over. Adam is cowardly blaming his wife. Adam is echoing the serpent. He is doubting the goodness of God, saying that God's design is actually destructive. Well, is Eve any different? God gives her the same opportunity to repent in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. She's right. She was deceived, but she's still responsible. She still doubted the goodness of God. She still acted in pride. She still sinned. So the deed is done. The serpent has seduced. The creatures have rebelled against their Creator. What will be the consequences of their mutiny? Beginning in verse 14 down through verse 19, we have words of judgment. Beginning in verse 14, God starts handing down the verdicts for these crimes. But let's study carefully and not miss the mercy in the middle of this mess. God begins first with the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The crafty serpent is now the cursed serpent. The serpent who tempted the woman to eat will now himself eat the dust of the earth. But the fact that God said, all the days of your life, makes clear that the serpent's life will end. Even as the serpent tempted Eve, saying, surely when you eat this, you will not die. Because of his treachery, his deceit, he's going to die. We'll see more about that in verse 15 in just a few moments. But what are the consequences for the woman? Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. What is Eve's penalty for her rebellion? Her pain will be great in childbearing. Now, many of you mothers, you, you automatically stop right here. You don't keep going anywhere else because when you hear this, you think back to the difficulty you had in childbearing. It's because of Eve that you labored for 31 hours to deliver that precious bundle of joy. We can look back and see it's because of what Eve has done. Her pain will be great. But don't miss the hope found here. Because where will Eve's pain be great? In childbearing. Pain is emphasized. It's it's mentioned here twice. Her pain will be great, but it will be in bearing children. Eve deserves to die. Eve will die. But before she dies, she will bring forth children. All hope is not lost. She will experience great pain, but it will be in a life-giving role. Furthermore, the woman's relationship with her husband has also been affected. It says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We saw in chapter 2 God's very good design. The designer of marriage defined that marriage 
requires that a husband is to lovingly lead his home and the wife is to graciously submit to the sacrificial leadership of her husband. But because of the fall, because of sin, God's very good design is deeply damaged and distorted. The woman's desire is to rule over her husband, to take that role that has not been reserved for her. But even worse, the husband will fail to lovingly lead. He will fail to guard and protect, to care for his wife as he should. Rather than leading, the text says that he will rule over you. There will be a temptation for the husband to rule in a domineering, abusive way. Both the husband and the wife will tend to abdicate the roles given to them by their Creator. What about Adam? What consequences will he face? What penalty will he receive? Verse 17 begins by giving the, re- the reason for Adam's punishment. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Now the fact that Adam and Eve had a conversation is not the problem. Husbands and wives are supposed to communicate. Husbands are supposed to listen to wives. Wives are supposed to listen to husbands. So there's something else going on here. It's not simply because Adam listened. It's a listening that led to obedience. He did what she asked. He followed her example. She led him into sin, but he knew better. He was not deceived, and yet he ate of the tree. Which tree is it? The tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Adam can't dodge responsibility any longer. He can't shift the blame. He can't plead ignorance. Adam is reminded here in the Lord's judgment, this is the command of the Lord your God that you broke and that you disobeyed. And because of this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both the man and the woman have pain introduced into their lives. For the woman, the pain will be primarily in childbearing. For the man, primarily in his life's labors. Remember that God took Adam and put him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. His job hasn't changed, but now the difficulty has changed. Even after he's expelled from the garden, Adam will continue to be a tiller of the soil. Adam will continue to work, but it's going to get harder. Adam is going to strain in his creativity. His productivity will be hindered. He will work, but the fruit of his labors will come through great sweat and toil. Keep reading in the verse, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till all, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. In the same way that God's words brought hope to the woman, God's words to the man bring a reminder of death. As the Book of Common Prayer reminds us, He will return earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. We've seen words of judgment, but in verses 20 and 21, we have words of hope. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam renames the woman. 
Now, I've been referring to her back and forth as the woman and as to Eve because we're so used to referring to her that way. But Adam doesn't actually give her this name until he hears the judgment of God and he hears the hope even in the midst of that judgment. And so he renames his bride, calling her Eve because she's the mother of all living. Now, up until this point, we keep hearing about death, death and death. But now we're given a message of life. This verse reminds us of two very important things. First, there were no other human beings at this time. Adam and Eve were not part of some evolutionary family. Adam and Eve were the only humans on this earth. And out of Adam and Eve and their marriage comes every person who has ever lived. Which leads us to the second critically important lesson. Is that for a believer, someone who takes God at His word... There is no room for racism in the heart of anyone who claims the name of Christ. If Adam and Eve are the only people who were there in the beginning and all people come from Adam and Eve, if she is the mother of all living, then we have absolutely no room in our hearts for someone who happens to have a different skin color than we do. To be sure, because of Adam and Eve's sin, racism along with every other sin exists. It will continue to exist until Jesus comes. But for the Christian... This opening bookend of Scripture reminds us that every person is made in the image of God. And every person comes from our father and mother, Adam and Eve, in the garden. There's great hope in being reminded that Eve is the mother of all living. But our hope increases in verse 21. You see, as you look at later, you'll you'll find in verses 22 through 24 that... Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. They're cut off from the tree of life. And as we get to the other bookend of Scripture, as we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to see that tree of life come again. And we're going to see uh, how humanity cut off from the garden can actually feast on the tree of life once again. But in our final few moments this morning, I want us to see the great hope that's found in verse 21 and also in verse 15. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Before Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, God in his mercy and his compassion clothes them. Adam and Eve attempted to cover their sins with wilting fig leaves. But God makes garments of skin and he covers them. Do you hear the difference? God has made the first sacrifice. God takes an animal and sacrifices it as an offering. Even from the beginning, God is making clear that sin requires a sacrifice. The author of the book of Hebrews makes it even clearer that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Adam and Eve could not cover their sins, and you cannot cover your sins. But God can cover your sins through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Even here in the beginning, we get a preview, the beginning of the very big picture of the perfect sacrifice of Christ all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Look back up in verse 15. Verse 15. We're back in the passage about the judgment of the serpent. But even in this passage, we see something very important. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 14 told us the the future 
the fate of the serpent. But suddenly in verse 15, the scope expands. We're no longer talking just about this physical serpent. We're given a preview of the great cosmic battle that spans the course of human history. And who is at the helm of history? God is. None of this catches God by the surprise. None of this is outside of God's sovereign control. God says, I will put, I will put, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There will be war. And who will be at war? The offspring of the serpent. The father of all lies. The one who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He will be at war with the offspring of the woman. Literally, it says the seed of the woman. Now, I don't need to give you a biology lesson this morning to remind you that a woman does not have seed. Eve is unable to produce offspring by herself. Adam is unable to produce offspring by himself. That's why in chapter 2, when God gives the command to be fruitful and multiply, God also gives him a helper, a wife fit for him. Oh, what a helper she will be. When God points to the seed of the woman here in Genesis chapter 3, he's giving hints, even back this early, of the virgin conception of our Lord. Now, do Adam and Eve understand that? No. Does Moses understand that when he records the words of God? No. But God is giving us hints all the way back in the beginning. He's pointing to a miraculous birth that will come from this woman one day. God is saying that there will come a day when from this woman will come a promised offspring, a promised seed, and there will be war. There are two types of bruising, two types of crushing that will occur. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That serpent of old Satan will bruise the heel of the promised one. There's pain that will be inflicted. The serpent will strike the Lord's promised one, but he will not defeat him. Instead, the promised seed will bruise. He will crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we have the history of the world and the story of redemption in a nutshell. The serpent will be defeated. We'll see that next week in Revelation chapter 20. But who will the serpent crusher be? Now, as New Testament Christians, we know the answer is Jesus. But don't run past the story that God is giving us. We're looking at the bookends of the Bible, which means we have a book. We have a big Bible. There's a lot of stuff in there. If God wanted to just say, hey, I'm going to send Jesus one day, he would have done it. But he didn't do that. He gives us a big story. We're trying to get the bookends of the story, but we don't need to run past and see what God is doing. Every time as we read the, New, the Old Testament, as we see the birth of a child, we're asking ourselves, is this the one? Will this be the promised offspring, the promised seed? Eve understood the promise. In chapter 4, she gives birth to a son and says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve wonders, will this be the child? Will this be the promised seed? But we find out that this first offspring in Scripture is not the promised one. Because the first offspring murders the second offspring. But God is gracious and He gives another child, Seth. Will he be the promised seed? 
With each passing generation, with each child born, Scripture asks, will this be the one? Will this be the serpent crusher? Chapter after chapter, page after page of the Bible, until we come to the book of Matthew. Until the day that the angel of the Lord announces to a man named Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her... It's from the Holy Spirit. Remember that miraculous birth that I pointed to you? The seed of the woman? And the angel said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Ah, finally, the serpent crusher is announced. He will save his people from their sins by being crushed. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. By one man's death, by one man's sin, death entered the whole world. The entire world was plunged into sin. But by one man's sacrifice, the God-man, Jesus Christ, He has made it possible to have victory over sin. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to continue to see this cosmic battle play out as we move next day, uh, next Lord's Day to the book of Revelation, the other bookend of Scripture. But I wonder this morning, are you doubting God's Word? Are you doubting the goodness of God? Are you twisting God's words in order to justify your sins? Are you attempting to cover up your sins in your own power? I plead with you today to repent and trust Christ. He is the promised offspring. He is the one who has defeated sin and death and Satan. Trust Christ today. I would love to speak with you more about that in the upcoming moments or after the service. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to be reminded this morning of why the world is the way it is. Remember where these struggles come from. Remember how great your sin is, but how great your Savior is. Don't grow discouraged as the offspring of the serpent seems to make advances throughout the world. Be encouraged that the offspring of the woman, he's putting all things under his feet. As Christians around the world today celebrate Reformation Day, I want you to take courage from the battle hymn of the Reformation penned by Martin Luther. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever and ever. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. God in heaven, we come to you today thanking you for the gracious gift that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Draw each of us nearer to you this morning. For those who are rebelling against you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you save even one today? 
But for those of us who have been saved by your power, divine Lord, would you remind us of the glory of our salvation and help us to produce fruit and light of what you've done for us. We ask all these things in your son's name and for his glory, we pray. Amen.